Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome and thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Catherine Wilson, the author of How to Be an Epicurean, The Ancient Art of Living Well. Catherine received her PhD in philosophy from Princeton and has taught at universities in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. In the conversation, Catherine and I discuss what led her to philosophy, the pivotal figures in Epicureanism, pleasure and pain, the virtue of justice, managing our desires, and much more. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious Catherine Wilson. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, Catherine. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. And before we get into your book, I was wondering if you could share a bit of what led you down the path to to philosophy at such a young age. Uh, well, I think the, the first philosophy book I read, um, I was home in bed with one of those childhood illnesses you get, and I read Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy because my parents had it around. And even though I later learned that Bertrand Russell did not write that book, I was really enchanted with it. It was lively and funny and engaging. And when I got to college, I became a philosophy major. And then rather unimaginatively just went on to do a few more degrees in philosophy. But I kind of veered over to history and philosophy of science because I really saw a lot of connections between history of science and philosophy that at the time, this was the 70s, people hadn't really tweaked to. Now, of course, there's a lot of work like that. Um, but um, this Epicureanism project really gave me a chance to work on the history of atomism, history of scientific explanation, germ theory of disease, as well as moral philosophy and political philosophy. When you think back to that those initial decisions to embark on an undergrad in, in philosophy, were there any other paths that you might have been uh, contemplating at, at the time? <laughs> That's funny that you, uh, that you asked that. Yeah, um, something I was thinking about lately. If I had it to do all over again, uh, would I do philosophy again? Probably, but I wish I had done more anthropology. Mm. Uh, there were opportunities to do that. And uh, at one point, I got really interested in the history of humanity, another Epicurean theme, and um, uh, archaeology and hunter-gatherer existence, life before civilization, and um, what early urban life was, was like as well. So now I have a chance to catch up a bit. I have time. <laughs> I'm not uh, teaching at the moment. 
Um, so never too late. You can always go back and learn new things. Well, I love it. That's really interesting, and I, I appreciate you sharing. If I've heard correctly in other interviews that your focus is on 17th and 18th century, how did you come to write a book on this ancient philosophical school of Epicureanism? <laughs> well, of course, there had to be a connection. And the connection was that in Toronto, uh, there was a conference running on the relationship of Epicureanism and Stoicism, maybe it was ancient philosophy in general, to early modern, that is 17th and 18th century. And at the time, I didn't think I was any kind of expert on that topic, but it intrigued me and I went along. And one thing led to the next. The paper became a published paper in a collection. And then I started doing more. Is there anything around this, this philosophy that you're still curious about? Right. So the question was, is there anything that I'm kind of stuck on or have to, um, have to think more about in connection with Epicureanism? Yeah, I guess more specifically, if you could grab a cup of coffee with Epicurus, you know, is there any question that you might throw his way? <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, I suppose I would ask him about about the relationship of Epicureanism to political action, because Epicurus was very uninterested in politics, except theoretically. He thought you just had to get out of the whole whole realm of people striving for position and influence and fame. And uh, as you know, he had his school outside of Athens where he didn't have to be bothered with these things. But that seems to me kind of an escapist position. You know, we really do have to be involved as citizens and talk to people, discuss with them, maybe take more direct forms of political action. So I would like to know what he would think if um, circumstances were different mm. at the time he was, he was writing. When Lucretius was writing, his Roman follower, of course, uh, Rome was in an uproar. Uh, it was in a kind of uh, state of civil war with lots of violence and executions. And you can see why someone would recommend just trying to stay out of it and keeping your head low. Mm. But... Well, it's a, it's a question that needs addressing, I think. Can we really opt out? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess maybe before we get too, too into the book, could you provide maybe a general framework around time periods and maybe some of the pivotal figures in the philosophy? Okay. Well, Epicurus himself is 3rd century uh, before Christ, so he's after Plato but, um, and after Aristotle, in fact. But he's drawing on an ancient tradition of atomism that was started um, allegedly by someone called Leucippus, about whom little is known, and Democritus, who got to be pretty famous. And after Epicurus, his Roman follower Lucretius turned books and letters and, and sayings of Epicurus into a Roman poem. Epicurus, of course, wrote in Greek, into a Latin poem. And this became really the basis of Epicureanism in 
in the early modern period. Now people have been uh, digging up some of the lost manuscripts of Epicurus. Some of them are on papyrus that had to be carefully unrolled. Uh, it was Many documents were buried in the eruption of Vesuvius. And scholars are just getting around to uh, reconstructing what they can of those old texts. But for a long time, we, we had some sayings, some uh, couple of letters came down through um, Diogenes, Diogenes Laertius. Uh, but Epicurus's poem was uh, really the main source. And everybody who knew Latin in the 17th and 18th century, which was everyone who had a university or in many cases, even a high school education, uh, would have been able to read that poem and might even have read it uh, in their in their Latin studies. I wanted to start with maybe uh, towards the end of the book, you write of this inscription at the entrance of Epicurus's garden. Here, our highest good is pleasure. Could you say more there? Oh, what they meant by pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Well, they didn't mean that uh, it was a place of wine, women, and song, even though the Epicureans were famous for their um, rather casual, uh, shall we call them, dating arrangements. Um, Epicurus himself liked women, had a series of affairs with women, and women were um, uncharacteristically allowed into the school uh, most most of the ancient sects uh, did had no interest in letting women in, and the Epicureans, unlike the Stoics, uh, as far as I know, and certainly unlike the Platonic school, um, seems to have welcomed them. So what they meant by pleasure, um, of course, Epicurus thought that friendship was the highest form of pleasure, uh, he thought eating and drinking in moderation. He says rather exaggeratedly, just a little bread and cheese and some water were fine for him. Uh, but I suspect they had more than that. And learning, studying, talking to people, conversing. Uh, we don't know exactly what they did, but um, it seems to have been a... a very pleasant life, and very free of some of the troubles that were going on in the city. One might wonder, how did Epicurus uh, support himself if he wasn't working for money? And he had benefactors who were rich and famous who supported him. So it's not a form of pleasant lifestyle that we can all aspire to, being supported by wealthy people. How about the opposite of that? How would they divine, define pain or, or struggle? Um, physical pain, of course. Um, but Epicurus says being cold and hungry are mm. some of the worst things that you can experience besides well, having a, a disease which leaves you miserable and which is incurable or even just a really horrible headache. Um, so deprivations of basic human goods were painful, but he thought there was also a kind of pain that came from anxiety and worry, especially about money and status. And 
People worried about their children. They worried about their reputations. They worried about whether they were getting ahead in life and you know, getting rich fast enough. And that these uh, this anxiety led to a kind of constant mental torment that could be avoided by having the right philosophy of life. Kind of a, a contrast with the Stoics who thought it was fine to participate in all those things, you should just resign yourself to the possibility that you might lose them. You might lose all your money or develop through no fault of your own a bad reputation, lose your employment, lose your friends to death. You should be prepared, but uh, oh, don't worry about pursuing those things. And it, it seems that many of these ancient schools have some misconceptions today what would you say is the biggest misconception for Epicureanism? It was a misconception that was present from very early on, uh, that the Epicureans were just um, fat, alcoholic, sloppy pigs who had no concern for anybody but themselves and um, who were... Uh, atheistic, which they pretty much were. That's something we can talk about a bit later. Um, impious, and uh, that they had meaningless lives. Mm. What would um, you say are some of the similarities? I know you, you referenced some of, the, some of the differences, and it often comes up with, with Stoicism and maybe other philosophical schools, but are there any similarities that come to mind of, of these big four philosophical schools of the time? Uh, I mean, Platonism, Aristotelianism, Stoicism, and Epicureanism. Certainly between Stoicism and Epicureanism, there are some common elements in that um, freeing people from worry and anxiety and mental pain is the aim. Um. I think Platonism is more focused on virtue. It has that in common with um, with Stoicism. Uh, Aristotelianism, I think, is operating on a somewhat different level, but it still shares with Epicureanism an interest in science and explanation, hmm. um, which uh, Platonism doesn't have and Stoicism uh, really doesn't have. So you can make connections and oppositions between all four, as you're suggesting. Um, but otherwise, you sometimes get the impression that the Stoics and the Epicureans were just trying to be as different from the other group as possible. Discussions with, with uh, Massimo uh, Pugliacci, my um, colleague at uh, CUNY, about this. I think we that's probably on the web somewhere. We had uh, a big who is better, Stoics or Epicureans controversy. In in Stoicism and Buddhism, there's the notion that anger is is to be avoided. Um, what is Epicurus's you know view on on anger? Um, I don't remember him Epicurus saying anything about anger. Uh, I think Lucretius. Lucretius doesn't say anything about anger between people who know each other well, I don't think. I may have forgotten something. 
but he's very pacifistic. And where the Stoics, I think, accepted war as a normal, natural part of human political life, as did just about every ancient philosopher, you really get the impression that the Epicureans thought it was it was um, right uh, just a human way of being that was completely irrational. Mm. And Lucretius talks about. Um, uh, terrifying wars where people were using wild animals, setting lions loose on one another. Um, and he just seems to kind of have no comprehension of the whole system of, of warfare, which is really outstanding for ancient philosophy. And uh, I think until the until the 18th century, you don't get philosophers questioning warfare with the same level of uh, intensity. And I think one of the reasons they do it is that they rediscover that in, in Lucretius. But personal anger, no. Um, as you know, Seneca says, because uh, I saw this on your website, Seneca says anger is always bad, anger is always pathological. He's taking issue with Aristotle, who thinks justified anger is justified. And anger provides important feedback to people when you think that they are offending you, which they may well be doing. I'm always curious about that, the debate of um, around anger. And sometimes there's this idea of righteous anger, which to me makes sense. But I would say righteous anger is not just anger, there's an element of compassion for another individual or group. Um, you know, how do you think about righteous anger? And, and is there anything from um, the Epicureans on, uh, on that? Right? No, righteous anger, not anger in general, not not righteous anger. Um, yeah. In there, their ethics is really one of um, accommodation. So Epicurus says that what justice is, is uh, a set of codes to prevent one person from harming another. And I think that's very basic and very profound, and that he's really captured the, uh, you know, the, the essence of ethics in that. Though ethics is not about your relation to some abstract virtue in the sky. It's about how you relate to other people right here on the ground mm. and uh, what you do to avoid pressing an advantage against them when you could. So uh, that, that, I think, takes us in a lot of directions, that, that conception of ethics. Um, is there... A, is there justified anger? Um, of course there is. It's another question whether getting angry at people is the best way to change their behavior. Hmm. Often it isn't. Yeah. It seems like there's quite a bit on the topic of maybe it's desire or moderation. Um, what can we learn about kind of managing our, our own desires that we have for, for more? Well, you could say that the desire for more is very culturally dependent. Not every human being desires to accumulate things. This is something that uh, 
Uh, we learn from studying hunter-gatherers who don't have a lot of possessions, don't feel the need for a lot of possessions, are often quite willing to share, accept a few very special things that they might not want anybody to touch. But what motivates people wanting more and more and more is often fear, fear of loss, fear of losing ground, fear that others will get ahead and uh, that they'll lose respect. We often wonder, I think, why do these billionaires want to keep making more billions? Most of us think we'd be satisfied with just 100,000 more uh, at the outside extreme. So who needs these billions? And of course, they don't need billions, um, but they go after them in order to be better than the next person or for fear that they will lose these billions. So I think fear of loss is a very dominant motive in, in human affairs. And Epicurean solution is um, if you don't pursue those things in the first place, just have enough to be comfortable, keep your life varied and interesting. Um, you don't need more. And you don't need to, as I think I put it in the book, win the Nobel Prize and the Pulitzer Prize and get the corner office. You can be satisfied with less. Mm-hmm. And that's a good um, good message as we uh, enter the age of what I think is going to be limited consumption. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to enter that age because we're just piling up too much rubbish. Mm-hmm producing too much, spending too much energy on production and consumption. How would you say that connects with the the meaningful life, according to the Epicureans? Um, I did write about this, and that was actually one of the more difficult questions to think about. I think the way I put it in the book um, was that people think that there are two ways of having a meaningful life. One is getting to be really famous, like uh, Einstein or Isaac Newton or a president or a conqueror or someone who uh, has a statue made to them. And the other way they think about having a meaningful life is uh, service, service to others. And the question I was raising was, could you have a meaningful life in which you weren't flat out devoting yourself to service for others, but doing things for yourself um, and without ever being rich or famous. And I thought the answer was yes. A, A meaningful life is one in which you feel surrounded by people and things that are meaningful to you and you're engaging in activities that really occupy you cognitively and emotionally. And it's like living in your own language, living with books and pictures and people, real people, uh, that you really like to be around. That's what makes life feel meaningful. And in states of of depression where people feel that life is meaningless, uh, it's because they don't feel that uh, they can be engaged with the things that are all around them. 
It seems like many traditions and in different philosophical schools speak to that very, very similar path. Why do you think that's so difficult for us sometimes to to wrap our heads around or or embody? I think our our culture uh, insists on achievement. Well, from the time we're in school, we're getting grades. Uh, people are recommending us or disrecommending us. Uh, we know that we have to compete for jobs. Um, we um, start to take our salaries and positions as as indications of our intrinsic value. It's, I think, virtually impossible in our society not to get caught up in this. And if you don't get caught up in it, I think you can um, end up having a more painful life. So that's the, that's the dilemma that we're in. If you don't struggle and strive and uh, pay attention to indicators that are considered important by the general culture, you may be deprived of good experiences and you know, even sustenance and, and the, the, basic, the basic needs. So that, uh, now that you mention it, that is another question that it would have been interesting to ask Epicurus, if you could put him into our society and say, all right, how does Epicureanism fit now in a culture in which achievement and competition have become so important for everybody, not just for an elite? Yeah, what do you think social justice would look like in an Epicurean society? Uh, I think there would be uh, much less uh, gap between very rich and very poor. Uh, that gap has grown enormously in the uh, last 50 years or so, even. And um, people are not so different in their abilities and interests and talents that you can really justify on grounds of merit these enormous differences in a quality of life. Mm. So I think we have to, we have to reduce, those, reduce those gaps. This is something that's a political discussion now. Um, and, uh, of course, the, the prejudice that we're up against, two prejudices that we're up against. One is the trickle-down theory, that when the rich become richer, it trickles down somehow to uh, the very poorest. That is simply untrue and has been shown to be untrue by the last 50 years. And the other is that your abilities um, earn you social rewards. And uh, what's naive about that is that uh, so, there's so much besides a person's individual abilities that earns them their place in the socioeconomic system. Chance, luck, whom they know, where they went to a university, uh, features of their character over which they have no real control. So we overemphasize the degree to which we deserve what we get and everybody else deserves what they get. You mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, friendship. And in a lot of the episodes that we've done, it's come about uh, 
this research around really an epidemic of, of loneliness in the society. How can we learn to cultivate better friendships? Is there any, any lessons that, that come to mind? Yeah, well, of course, for the Epicureans, it was um, easy in a way because they were all living together, hmm. or at least spending a lot of time together in the garden. I think um, one problem with modern friendship is that people are very busy. And, um, you know, you, you try to make arrangements and get together with people. And in New York, where I lived for a while, you're making arrangements six weeks in advance. And it's mm. very hard to cultivate a, um, a kind of intimate friendship with someone that you only see every six weeks, if that. But people are busy with families, with careers, with uh, watching television, with uh, other things they have to do. Um, some people have too many friends, and some people have too many virtual friends. So for real friendship, I think you have to restrict your circle. You have to not be afraid to have frank conversations with them, and you have to see them on a regular basis. You know, the, if you think back to the friends of your youth, those were people that you saw you know, virtually every day. And that's what leads to strong and intimate friendships. Yeah, very true. That makes a, a lot of sense in terms of the, the frequency. Yeah, that definitely connects with me around some of those childhood friendships. When you think of pleasure, this our highest good is pleasure, is there any connection between that and doing the opposite of this busy life, um, just practicing some sort of stillness? It's not an especially uh, Epicurean thought, but um, I think there certainly is. I think uh, practices of meditation, people have found very valuable. Um, just walking around by yourself can be... Uh, Right? A wonderful experience. You know, mm. Just get some time to be alone, be anonymous, be part of the crowd, or go to a museum where you don't have to talk to anybody, like the person you came with. Just immerse yourself in, in something else. I think the for the Epicureans, it was uh, the study of philosophy itself, the study of nature. You know, that's where they found these quiet moments of, of reflection. I wanted to read something you, you write and get your thoughts on it, if I could, Catherine. You write, the desire to feel cosmologically important is, however, hard to satisfy because we are not. Could you say <laughs> more on, on this idea? <laughs> I suppose I was thinking there of, of uh, the enormous change that came about in the 17th century, when you went from an essentially Christian culture in which people thought the earth was the center of the universe, that uh, the world had been created by God for the benefit of humans, that humans were special, in contrast to all the other animals, and would have a special post-mortem existence, and that uh, God watched everything they did, could rescue them, could punish them, could reward them. 
Moving from that into a more Epicurean perspective, in which the atoms just happen to come together and form a world, and plants and animals just grew up naturally, they weren't created, and in which um, our planet is just a little speck of dust in a huge cosmos that nobody is watching over, our individual lives are not being watched over, That was part of Epicurean theology, that there are gods, but they're just off in space somewhere doing their own thing. And you can't really feel that uh, the earth and you are cosmologically important. You know that the earth is going to be swallowed up by the sun one of these days, and long before that, all life will be gone. Uh, But we hope not by the end of the 21st century. <laughs> I, I love this idea. A previous guest we had on, Oliver Berkman, uh, wrote in the book 4,000 Weeks about this suggesting uh, what he called cosmic insignificance therapy, you know, meditating on this idea. Um, it's not necessarily seen as a, as a positive thing to some. How, how can we maybe... And maybe I'm um, speculating, but how can we think about this as as a positive thing to to help us in in everyday life coming to this realization? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe the the realization is that you don't need cosmological significance. That you're mm. part of nature, you're part of living nature, you're part of a long line of human beings that will come after you for some period of time, not eternally, but that there is so much that your human senses and your human mind and your human ability with language can give you in terms of interest and enjoyment. That it doesn't matter if you're finite, um, if you're not going to live forever, if you're probably not going to live beyond your middle 80s, uh, that being the average life expectancy, um, that uh, life is a feast that you can enjoy before you check out one way or another. I, not too long ago, went to a a planetarium in Baltimore, and it kind of just gives you a a visual of this, and it, it just really kind of opens up your perspective on the on the cosmos, I guess, if if you will, I think of the Stoic practice of this cosmic view from above, and you know, you read some of Marcus Aurelius's meditations on this. Are there any particular practices? I, I sometimes think that Stoicism is is popular today because there's specific practices. Um, is there anything that comes to mind around practices from Epicureanism? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Stoics are are more into introspective practices, I think, than the Epicureans. Epicureans are more outward focused towards nature, towards other people, um, towards the world. They don't really, they don't think of the mind as an inner citadel. 
And uh, of course, they're very beautiful passages in Marcus Aurelius. He's absolutely my favorite Stoic. Um, uh, very meditative passages. Um, and you don't find those in any of the Epicurean writings, at least that I'm familiar with. In terms of practices, I just don't think that's their thing. They want to, yeah. they want to learn. They want to explore nature. They want to figure out uh, how to explain all these things going on around them. Why are there volcanoes? Why does the weather change? Why do we fall ill? There's a, a basic curiosity about them. So in terms of, of reflections, and what would Epicurean reflections be? Um, in, in terms of, let, let's say you're, you're struggling with something or suffering from something. Okay? Maybe the people around you are really getting on your nerves and bothering you and you feel unjustly treated. Um, the Stoic solution to that is to say, maybe I'm caricaturing, but one form of the Stoic uh, reaction to that is to say, I am letting these people bother me. It's my choice. I don't have to let them bother me. Um, I can control my feelings and my attitudes, and I can somehow rearrange my thoughts so that I stop suffering from this. And my reading of the Epicureans is that they, uh, they don't think that you have that control over your thoughts. If you feel people are being really unfair to you and making you miserable and making your life complicated, um, you can't just change your feelings and attitudes. All you can do really is get out of that situation. Mm. Get to a place where you are not so bothered by them because you are really open to the world and permeable. You are not an inner citadel, according to the Epicureans, because the, uh, the atomic world, so to speak, is always impinging on you, always affecting you, and you're always reacting to it, which is most of the time not a bad thing. That's why we can feel pleasure. But the other side of feeling pleasure is susceptibility to pain. So it's impossible to have a life that's completely free of pain. Mm. That's just kind of incompatible with Epicurean physiology. So they would say, don't expect to be all-powerful, and certainly not in the psychological realm, except that you are vulnerable. But try to avoid those people. Mm. And that fits together with their view that you should stay out of politics, where you are bound to suffer. I tend to think of, as you were describing that, of relationships and, and being in, in marriages and raising families. Um, maybe there isn't that ability to, to step away. How might an Epicurean in a situation like that handle some of those challenges? Anything come up for you? Yeah. Well, that's the difference between uh, modern culture and the Epicurean, the Epicurean society. In the Epicurean society, if a relationship was giving you trouble, you just left it. 
And mm. Epicurus rather pointedly uh, was not in favor of having children, at least for him. He says the philosopher can have children if they want, but, you know, really children are a lot of trouble. And I think this is, this is a real problem with Epicureanism. It's a place where it's vulnerable. And maybe the Stoics had a better attitude in this case. Um, because once you have children, uh, you can't just walk out of relationships, either with your children or with the person that you have children with. You have to come to terms. You have to accommodate. And that's where morality and ethics as accommodation come into it. You have to avoid hurting that other person, but you also have to, of course, uh, preserve your own sanity. So it's a matter of adjustment that um, the Epicureans didn't have a lot to say about. Epicurus talks a lot about um, romantic suffering. What happens when someone you are really, really involved with is kind of drifting away from you? He says, you see that she's uh, looking with interest at another man, giving him a little smile. Jealousy, he thought, is the worst kind of emotional torment anybody can feel. And he's probably right about that. Hmm. But he says the techniques are just to remember there are others. We lived for a while without that one, and we can live without that one again which is very good advice. Hmm. How about when you think about wisdom in everyday life, what comes up for you around a, a definition for, for wisdom today? I mean, I'm not a big wisdom person um, because I think we go through life. I don't think we acquire a lot of wisdom and here, I think one reason we don't acquire a lot of wisdom is that the world is not predictable. It's not like we can face the same situation enough times that we know how to react. And I think some philosophers overemphasize our mastery of the world. And this is where Epicureanism, we haven't talked much about Epicurean physics, I don't think, or the Epicurean view of finitude. But what something that, that they really stress, I think Epicurus especially, um, is that the configuration of the world is always changing. New things are happening. People are inventing things. New people come into your life. Old people disappear. You face a whole new set of circumstances. And even when you think life is going along in a completely predictable way, wham, there's some curveball that comes into your life. And I think all that really militates against developing wisdom because you just can't develop the competence to deal with all new situations that are thrown your way. You can always be caught off guard. Something new happens. How do I react to this? How do I respond to this? But they have something that is perhaps an, um, next door to wisdom, and that is understanding how the world works. And when you understand more about how the world works, you I don't think it makes you necessarily calmer because you see more injustice, 
You see things that are poorly understood, that nobody understands. You see a lot of human irrationality at work. But at least you have the, uh, the satisfaction of uh, trying to learn what's going on. Why do people behave the way they do sociologically, politically? Um, what's going on in medicine? What's going on in the human body? What's going on in space? What have we learned about the climate and animals and our food supply? So I think the Epicureans are oriented towards learning rather than a traditional concept of wisdom, which to me sounds like you reach a stage where you've got it all figured out. Nothing bothers you anymore. Nothing mystifies you anymore. You're just going along on a level plane. Well, I absolutely love that definition. And that is a great way to wrap it up. I've just got one final question. Our, our time flew by here. If you could think of maybe a short aphorism from Epicureanism to maybe send out across social media or billboards or whatever it may be, is there anything that, that comes to mind that, that is really, really useful information? Oh, <laughs> yeah, you caught me uh, off guard with that one. Um, well, one thing, one thing I've been thinking about lately, um, it's not explicitly in Epicureanism, but it's there implicitly, and that's that it's really important to think about the difference between faith and trust. So faith I would describe as an irrational thinking that something or other is true or something exists for which you have no good evidence. You believe despite the lack of evidence. And religious faith is like that. Faith in charismatic leaders is like that. Even though they keep disappointing you, you keep <laughs> right admiring them and worshiping them. And I think trust is very different from faith. Trust is based on direct experience of the reliability of someone or something. They have never let you down, or if they let you down, right, you sorted it out with them. Things you can trust are things for which you have good evidence and not a lot of evidence to the contrary. So we trust other people. Sometimes we have to trust the scientists, even though it's difficult to trust the scientists. Um, but trust is to be cultivated, and faith, I think, is not to be cultivated. So I would send out that very controversial right? <laughs> aphorism. I haven't made it into an aphorism, but that, that <laughs> thought I would put out as a, maybe a challenge. I love it. I appreciate it. Well, this has been great. Where can people go to, to learn more about you and, and your work in the world? Uh, um, I think if you Google Catherine Wilson philosophy, uh, there are a few leads there. Uh, I've, I've got these several books on Epicureanism. Um, one is for lay readers, not philosophers, that how to be an Epicurean. And uh, then I've got some more specialized books. Um, I did the Oxford Very Short Introduction to Epicureanism. 
And then I did a more scholarly book on 17th and 18th century and uh, role of Epicureanism, mostly uh, in in uh, science, but also politics and ethics. Are you are you able to share? Are you able to share anything you're working on now, Catherine? Uh, yeah, um, I thought I might write a book called uh, "Science in the Crosshairs" about. Um, why we mistrust science, why we should mistrust science, and why we should trust science. So you see that this uh, theme of trust and um, scientific explanation is um, something I'm really thinking a lot about these days. I think, uh, of course, the pandemic and all the conflicting information we got from scientists that really kind of uh, tweaked something. So I'm planning to write a short book along those lines. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Catherine. This is, it's really been a pleasure. Good. I uh, look forward to uh, reading more on your website. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.